We're live. We're live. Welcome to TTSN, the Transformational Squirrel Network, where we make shift happen. I want to welcome you all here today. We are so excited to have Edward Fitzgerald here with us from the UK. It's one o'clock in the morning, his time, and he has thankfully decided to join us. We're so blessed that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to do so. We are really thrilled to be here today with you to talk about um, your traumatic brain injury, how you healed that, to talk about the Dreamer movie, and to talk about the seven dimensions to creating a better world for all. But before we get into those specific things, Edward, I would like to ask you to first of all to welcome you to our program and then to ask you great to ask you to tell us a little bit about your backstory tell us what got you where you are today oh that's a a a long hard question i guess um where did it get me to where i am today uh loving family um mum and dad um my father was a, a builder and decorator uh, they were born just before the the second world war dad was probably eight when they uh, no was he no would have been six when the, when the first dad from the second world war broke out um and so I've, I've got a lot of values that that were instilled in into me I'm, my mum was quite late when she had me for, for in 1960s standards she was 30 um when i came along in 1968 and um and then my my 18 month younger sister uh, came along afterwards and um we grew up in south london um in a normal sort of environment and what have you but we were very um uh, came from a, a sort of a, a background of um where there was a lot of sense of community still um yeah. And I know that's changed a lot in, 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 in a lot of cities where they've become very sort of um, fractured in that respect. And, um, but yeah, so I, you know, we, I grew up in, in, in London in, in the 1970s when it was overshadowed with sort of terrorist bombings and things like that. And um, it wasn't the same as, as sort of living in, um, in Belfast or somewhere else where you were living under constant threat that wasn't a, a war zone as such. But um, I think it does sort of shape you in terms of um, the you know, risks that, that, you, that you have. Um, in those days that the, the terrorists used to phone up and say that there was a bomb in a particular location, you know, rather than um, <laughs> now where, you know, where it's just completely indiscriminate. So, but, um, um. They used to tell on themselves, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's not detracting the way away from the, you know, the people that that did lose their lives in terrorist bombings or what have you, you know, and uh, still are. Um, You know, we've had some really bad ones since, but you know, I'm I keep being reminded about the fact that you know I was what I've been uh, almost eight months old, I guess. Um, with the the first landing of, of you know um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and what have you on the moon, right. and then you know um, the fact that you know how not just technology but how 
you know, we've evolved. Um, we've you know, perhaps I don't know speak for, for sort of some parts of, of Canada where it gets really, really cold, but you know, um <laughs> we did we grew up in houses that didn't have central heating, you know. Um and um there's a Billy Connolly sketch that I saw recently where he talks that he was quite he grew up in quite a, a poor out uh, neighborhood and he talks of um you know having you know growing up as a kid with with piles of, of clothes you know you, you may have measured how cold it was by how many um coats you had on top of the bed <laughs> right. you know um, and um so you know to, to think now where you know when we have a cold snap and it's still you just turn the heating up a little bit more um you don't have those those creature comforts um that you've got now that you just didn't think about when you were kids you just right you know, it's cold and you got up yeah walk to school in the rain and, and I'm, my kids go oh can you not so you only live a mile away you know you just walk you know we have to walk miles <laughs> in the rain <laughs> right uphill both ways yes. yeah <laughs> right but uh so I don't know in, in terms of what, what what um people might want to understand about my background I, I think I've, I had quite a um a grounded childhood um went to um a local village school even though we live in, in we lived in the south south london it was, it was still quite a small school and um it, even then it was quite multicultural society um so you know london's grown up as one of those sort of very cosmopolitan um uh, cities where you know i think you do even from a, a young age you know skin color didn't make any difference you know you you grew up with different backgrounds privileged you know those that that you know were quite poor um i think you just get used to um not just you know not discriminating i never felt that there were you know that we did see discrimination but you know as a child you just accepted um everyone for who they were and, and what have you Nice. And perhaps that part, of, again, with the values that my parents sort of have given, I just pass those on to my sons, you know, in, in the same way, mm -hmm. um, especially during this period of, you know, we're into our third lockdown in the UK, um, third national lockdown, and um, just trying to sort of share some of those thoughts of, of gratitude um, with my, my sons, just to say that, you know, there are always someone else worse off than you, you know. Um, at least we've got a, a roof over our heads and food in our bellies. There are places in the world where you know, it's so hot they don't have the um, they don't have refrigerators to keep food cold and fresh. Um, if they don't go out every day to, to, to get the food, then then they don't eat. And um, I think that some of those things you just have to remind yourself. Um, how fortunate you are absolutely yeah for sure so edward when you were growing up i know that you have a sailing background i know that water is someplace that is important to you yeah. and growing up in the uk you're surrounded by water and so tell us a little bit about how you began your sailing um i went to a um a school called the London Nautical School. Um, so instead of going to 
um, for normal secondary school. I started off at Naval, what was effectively a Naval College. And um, so my first experiences, I guess, were um, what we call pulling gigs, which are big, um, if you can think of a, a big old fashioned lifeboat with, with oars. And we used to row these around the docks. And um, some of the docks in London now, they were working docks then. So, you know, you had ships unloading and all those, but it was now they're just um, uh, upmarket, you know, penthouse suites and all the rest of it uh, in that part of London. And I guess that was my earliest sort of um, inclination for, for a tie to the sea. So I wanted to be, in, I wanted to go in the Navy and that was, that was the progression for the, for the, for this, for this school was to, was to uh, encourage youngsters to go into the Navy. And um, I, several of my friends did. I, I chose not to. Um, we moved out of London to the south coast um, of the UK, which um, obviously brought me much closer to, to water. And it was really then that I was able to then go sailing every day, um, which ultimately led to my demise educational-wise. Uh, when, um, when I skipped two years, I, I, um, I, I continued my high school, I guess, high school education in, uh, in those terms. And then at age 16, I wanted to do electronics, um, physics and computer science. And I was told by the, what we, what is known as a thick form college. So when you're 17, 18, you go to do advanced level um, secondary education before you then go on to university. And um, I just turned around and said, I'm sorry, I, I don't see, you know, he said, the dean of the, of the college said, oh, I, you know, uh, those are only half subjects. Um, you need to take um, economics. And I said, well, sorry, I, apart from the fact that it's both electronics and economics start with any, I don't see any relevance. And uh, fortunately, I, I discovered there was a, um, what is now a, a university, it was a, an institute for higher education at that time. In, in, in the city of Southampton, which was the closest city to us, um, that was offering those that had failed their exams uh, or didn't quite get the grades they wanted to take an entrance exam to then go into the university. And, um, and that's what I did. I managed to skip two years of education and, and went in at 16 um, and studied electronics and marine electronics, funnily enough. And, and the view then was, okay, well, perhaps that's still my route going into the Navy. And um, I was then racing dinghies um, and I'd started offshore racing as well. I, I discovered um, this, this uh, kind of weird sport of offshore racing, which um, with terms like hot bunking. And I said, sorry, what's hot bunking? And mm -hmm. they said, well, um, there's normally, you know, if you if you've got uh, a 30 or 40 foot boat, there's normally only enough bunts for half the crew to sleep. So when you we do a watch system of four hours on, four hours off, two out, and then you do a dog watch so that you can alternate. So you're not doing the same hours on a long distance race. And um, so at the end of your watch, the, the guys that get out of their bunk, you get into their bunk, so it's hot. So that's why it's called hot bunking. And um, so it was quite a weird sort of um, introduction to uh, my offshore racing. Um, but yes, yeah, so in terms of the sailing, I've done quite a lot since then. Um, too many fast net races that I can't recall. 
um, which is a race that leads from it's a 605 nautical mile race that races from um, a place called Cowes on the Isle of Wight. It's quite a big yachting centre for the UK. Um, and you race non-stop all the way down um, and across the Irish Sea to a, a little rock with a with a, uh, a lighthouse stuck on the end of it, um, just off the uh, what it be the southeast coast of, of Ireland, and then you, you race around that and you race all the way back to a place called Plymouth. And um, so yeah, so I've, I've done sort of all sorts of things in in boats that floated, some that didn't, um, and I think it was. Um, it was my penultimate year. I was about to start my penultimate year of a four-year course and um, the Southampton Institute of Higher Education, which is now Solent University. And I got asked to leave um, by my head of faculty. And um, I was one of those people, I was getting the grades, but I wasn't seen to be studying properly because I'd fall asleep in, I think, I think, I think the dean the faculty took an umbrage to his very boring um, lectures on coding, <laughs> uh, which were after lunch on a Friday, which um, by that point, you either given up the will to, to live by the end of the week, or you've been, <laughs> in the, you've been in the student union bar and you fell asleep because you're half cut or something else. Um, <laughs> but for me, it was because I'd been racing every night that week and then Friday night, I, we'd start our racing, so I'd leave early and we'd be on the boat for about four o'clock to start an offshore race that would race, leave Friday night, um, race all night. You'd arrive somewhere off the coast. Sometimes we actually arrived somewhere in, in a little port in France and um, Ray was going to have breakfast um, somewhere or, you know, we'd go within sniffing distance of France and we'd turn around and come back again. Um, either way, I'd have no sleep for m most of the weekend, and then I'd. And sometimes, if it was a long race to say someone like um, La Rochelle or um, San Marlo, then I, I wouldn't be back until early hours of the Monday morning, and then would go into college. So, um, so with hindsight, they probably made the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> and so, was it so in college that you had? I know you you had a an incident with a whale. Yeah, that was um, that was a little bit later. That was in '93. Um, I'd I'd already started my own business by that point, and um, I um, I was I got a South African friend, and his parents still lived in South Africa in Cape Town, and we were racing his father's forty foot boat. And unfortunately, during that period, it was that was just before the the, the fall of apartheid, and um, so anything that was imported was um, classed as a luxury item, um, especially anything electronics or yachting related. So we turned up with all our safety harnesses, used to doing you know sort of certain level of um, having safety equipment on board, and then only to turn up to this boat that was falling apart. The ropes were all frayed. There was nowhere to clip our harnesses on. And um, we, it was one of the offshore races that we did down into the Southern Ocean. And it was, I don't know if anyone's ever experienced, you know, been in the Southern Hemisphere. Certainly when you've got no light pollution, 
you cannot get a pin between the stars. It is such an amazing experience. And um, wow. if you picture sort of a, this backdrop of a you know, sort of midnight blue sky with literally with stars and the, and the ocean is just black, just completely black because you've got, you know, all you've got is moonlight. And um, we're surfing off these waves with a spinnaker up. So um, those are not yachting. So the spinnaker is that big coloured sail that goes at the front um, and you, you're running before the wind. And we're surfing off these waves. And um, earlier in the day, we'd broken the guardrail. I told you this boat was not particularly well maintained. And the guardrail is a wire that goes between each of the stanchions to it's just stopped you falling overboard, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, so bearing in mind, I've got no, I've got my safety harnesses, got nothing to clip onto. And um, so I'm working on, and I'm trying to tie up with a piece of string to repair this wire that had broken on this on this guardrail. And while I'm doing this, I'm, I've got both hands. So any sort of motion this way, it's only gravity that's really holding me to the deck. And um, all of a sudden with this bang, and I was like, and I literally, I'm, I'm thrust through the, through the guardrail and I'm just about to disappear over the side. And my friends grabbed my ankle, my, 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 fortunately my boot stayed on, grabbed my ankle. Yeah. And, um, but it was one of those things I was like, oh my God, because quite often you get um, containers that, that get washed off ships and they just float just below the surface. And, um, or, you know, they, they, there's a little bit of air in there, they're, they're just about buoyant. But it wasn't, you know, if we'd hit something like that, it would, that would have been quite, um, well, it was just hold the yacht and we were sunk straight away. What we'd actually done was one of the South African guys rushed up and went, oh my God, we just hit a whale. And, he, and uh, what happens is they sleep on the, on the surface. And fortunately, we, we just glanced off the side of it. So we surfed off a wave. If we, hit it straight on, it would have just stunk us. Um, and I think if we'd have been going any slower, when they wake up, that's when all the damage is done, their towel comes up. Um, so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm hoping when, you know, all I saw when I looked, looked over the stern of the yacht was this, this uh, shadow or this, this silhouette on top of the waves of this huge, great big whale. Um, so I'm, I'm, I like to think that we only gave him a little bit of a headache um and we didn't do any real damage but um yeah that was certainly an experience oh i bet hey wow no let's kidding. go back to for a minute to because we skipped ahead a bit to when yeah. you were 23 so mm. you were 23 and you started some businesses yes um so i'd already said that i'd already skipped a couple of years yeah so i got kicked out early um Fortunately, I landed myself a job through um, word of mouth recommendation, really, um, with a company called Motorola. It was a little company at the time. Um, for those that don't remember them, um, that are a bit on the younger side, that they had their their mobile phones were were those big brick shaped, you know, um, things that were with a stubby aerial on them. My yeah. boss had one of those. I got the transportable car kit. Which was literally a car battery, 12, 20, you know, 12 volt car battery with all the <laughs> electronics mounted on top and, and, a, and a hand set. That was my mobile phone. And, um, but I worked in the uh, data comms division. And then um, 
after a few years of working for them, I um, and actually that was my first trip to Canada. Oh. First ever trip to Canada was uh, I, I did an audit of one of the manufacturing facilities in Brampton, Ontario, and um, that was in minus forty, <laughs> wearing a summer suit, lucky, <laughs> um, just before my twenty-first birthday. That was, and um, so I I I got an awful lot of experience in a very short period of time, working for you know a big major multinational, and I just felt that. Um, I'd already got headhunted to work for another company very, very for a very short period. And within six months of working there, I realized that this wasn't for me and I'd already started to pay my exit. So age 23, I started my own consultancy practice. But I was so, um, this was 1992. But during that, that period, you know, um, management consultants were a bad word. So mm -hmm. I didn't really want to be called a consultant. So I, for about six or seven years I just didn't even call myself a consultant but I set up this consultancy practice um, helping um, companies take mainly telecoms but IT later on it was IT as well IT and telecoms related te technology products um, from idea through R&D through all the testing you know telecoms and IT was very regulated in those days um, so you'd have to meet various regulatory standards and what have you, um, right the way through to first customer launch, um, first customer shipment. And that was, that was me. I, I started that off age 23. Um, and it, but it wasn't until probably a couple of years ago or 18 months ago that I realized that my first, every, every, uh, project that I got, I was being hired was because of my intuition. I didn't realize it was that. Um, my first major project that I got, or um, first major client was Rachel Datacom, who um, one of their spin-offs was Vodafone. And um, I was hired because one of the senior um, technology officer um, said, you know, if anyone can smell a rat that's not going right in an industry meeting, it'll be Edward. And um, I hadn't realized that that was my intuition playing out, but I, it, it took taken me years to realize that um, that my superpower, which is my intuition, has been been there all along, and I just wasn't really aware of it. That's and, I, and that was part, part of doing business. You know, I, I set up several businesses along the way um, in, and, and multiples in, in parallel. And I can probably say, but for... For every business decision that I didn't follow my gut, because that's what we recognize widely as, as gut instinct, um, is your intuition, is, um, you know, those, those decisions didn't go well. Um, you know, if I went against my intuition, they didn't go well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But yeah, so I grew that. I ended up doing, uh, I've launched, I lost count of four and a half thousand innovative products and services that have launched and I've done that in about 80 countries so um I've wow. 80, traveled 80 a lot. countries Eight Eight zero. Zero. yes wow yeah um that's so I that's spent a lot of my professional life adult life traveling um I did I was hoping last year I was was hoping to make that 82 there was two new countries that I hadn't worked in 
I've traveled to a lot more, but there was two others that I hadn't worked in. And um, unfortunately with, with COVID and all the rest of it, they shut their borders to anyone that was coming from the US or, or the UK. So that, um, that stopped that. Mm. So hopefully when the borders open again, we can resume traveling. Absolutely. And so from, from having these, these companies that you created, you had other ones on the side that you were working on as well. Um, and you created virtual, a virtual company? Um, yeah, so prior to, so I'd also set up a, um, so, so I tried to create um, a set of businesses that were diverse in the respect that I didn't have all my eggs in one basket. So I had a service office business. Um, and then from that, we spawned a, a video conference bureau service. So um, before we had Zoom and, and what have you, um, you'd have professional video conferencing facilities. So if you wanted an interview or something like that, you would go and not everybody that would, would be able to invest, because we're talking tens of thousands of pounds in those days for this sort of professional end equipment. Um, but I was quite fortunate in the respect that the market leader um, was a startup when I they became a client of mine. Um, and I got paid for one, for one job, I got paid in the system, a piece of equipment. Um, and so that sort of start, started that other little franchise, that other little business. Um, but the virtual side of it really came because I, um, we were doing a lot of work, a lot of projects in um, emerging markets where, so when the, the Asian money or financial crisis hit in the late 90s, um, so pre-dot-com bubble, that rippled all the way through and it, it, it pretty much wiped out um, the fledgling um, uh, Russian stock exchange. And, but the money that, that, was, that was, in, was tied up was, was minuscule really, but it, it sent a, a bit of a wave through and, and people that were uh, perhaps new to those markets got put off and um, it just hit a bad time. So um, I went from hiring to having to lay people off and I just created um, a virtual team then from, the, from then on from 98. Um, and yeah, so that was probably, a, a, probably the earliest virtual team that I can think of in terms of uh, from a business model. Mm -hmm. uh, and that stood me true until um, my brain injury. Which in 2001. Yeah. yeah. So tell us, tell us about that. Walk us through what that, what that was like and, and the emotions that went with all of that. Um, again, sailing was the cold prep. Yes. Um, I was racing a friend's yacht and um, got hit on the forehead just here. Um, probably can't tell in this light, but every, you know, occasionally, um, when I'm tired, the, the muscles are a bit loose and you can just see a little indentation. And, um, excuse me, the, um, I, oh, what was it? We were, it, was, it wasn't that windy. It was about, it was a four seven. So it's 30 plus knots of wind. But a little 30 foot boat, that's enough. And um, we were short handed and uh, my goddaughter was on the foredeck. So I decided, that um, it was too rough for her. So I, I would go forwards, which meant there was one less person in the cockpit. And um, 
we were just tacking, which you know, maneuvering the boat, and one of the sail the sail got caught. Um, but by the time it got free, the whole weight of it plus the a stainless steel ring, um, the sort of thickness of my thumb, um, it was attached to the end of the sail, went out and hit me at about 30 miles an hour. And um did knock me out, but um I didn't even know it was a brain injury at that point. I just because the adrenaline was still pumping and um that was probably about nine o'clock in the morning and we still we we finished the race at about four thirty, five o'clock in the evening. Wow. And um but it was there were tell I, I looking back now, there was there was obvious telltale signs, you know. I I if, if anyone's ever worn sunglasses or both of you wearing glasses, you get water drop bits on it on your glasses and that's just like my that's how my vision was for, for the rest of the day um i couldn't focus beyond the beyond the mast if i was you know i even took the helm at one point but i was doing it all by feel i couldn't see anything um very well um and that was primarily because we were we were leading our our class in the race at that point and um just my um i, I guess the neurologist put it down to um my competitiveness and he'd also treated you know used to treating sort of service people that are veterans that had explosions and he said it was you just all I can liken it to you were just your brain was held in this state where you were just waiting for the next flashbang to go off mm -hmm. um but it, it was quite not scary I wouldn't use the word scary because um the effects of it sort of evolved um, over the following week so I didn't go to I, you know I said I don't want to go to hospital because I didn't want to spend the next four hours where hanging around in you know accident and emergency um, mm -hmm. my two eldest sons were four and two I think they were at that time and um, you know it's all that upheaval of the whole family having to sit in you know in a yard yeah. room somewhere so I said, like, I'll be fine. And it was the next morning when I felt like I someone was holding my ankles up and I was being held almost upside down in the bed, being swung round. And I oh. literally woke up grabbing hold of the sheets going, oh, stop, I want to get off. Oh, <laughs> I think yeah. that was at that point. I said, I think I need to go to see someone. Yeah. Um, so I think that was sort of the realisation. But um I was misdiagnosed initially, went to the first hospital. We've got a local hospital, but it's nurse-led. So that um, means there's no doctors there, certainly, certainly not at the weekends. And um, initially they thought I had a detached retina because of the sensitivity oh. to, to the light. So I went with this, this referral letter um, up to the main city, you know, there's a Southampton city, which is about 20 miles away. Um, to their large um, general hospital and um, again I was seen by a doctor that in the accident department that disappeared for about 10 minutes after he'd looked at my head because there was as you know as you can see there was no there was no cuts there was no no blood anywhere all the all the impact had gone inwards yes. and um, mm. I think it was only after about 10 minutes one of the the, uh, the nurses the sisters came in and said oh you know I've got a um, are you okay? I went, no, I've got a referral letter. And that's only then that they went, and he, this doctor came back with some painkillers. And uh, 
was going to send me away. And then I was even misdiagnosed when I went, because they got that ophthalmic A&E, and I was misdiagnosed then as well. But um, the, the, I'm trying to describe some of the things that, um, so I was suffering with vertigo. Um, my speech was slurred and labored, primarily because I just couldn't remember the words to say. And I think it was after about, because I was being treated with concussion, even with even my by my own GP. And I think it was after about um, a week, I'd gone back into my own doctor's surgery. It was when I got up, stood up to walk across the, the, the waiting room and I stumbled um, that my GP then said, right, let's see, I'm not, you're not leaving. I'm going to get you a CT scan. Mm -hmm. um, unbeknownst to me at that particular point, it wouldn't have identified any bleeding or, or anything on the brain. Mm -hmm. So I never, I didn't have an MRI like I should have done. Um, and it took, because they thought I, they were dealing with concussion because I had another knock on the head previous to that um, sailing, that um, they put it down to concussion. And it was four months before I got a referral to a neurologist. Wow. And so did you have, like, was there much for memory loss? Like, was that a, a key sign or a key uh, effect that the brain injury had for you? Um, yeah, um, how can I put it? So it wasn't just the fact that, so I was struggling with words and my speech was labored and slurred because I couldn't think, the, think of the right words to say, I couldn't articulate them really. That was part of it, that was obviously a, because outwardly, and that was I think the, the hard thing for my wife was, um, outwardly I didn't, there was, didn't look like there was anything wrong with me. Right. And, so it was only really the physical things like the slurring of the words and everything else that that I couldn't hold a thought in my head going from one room to the next, you know. Um, I'm like that now. No. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, you know, but sometimes you go and you go, why did I come into this room? Oh, and you retrace your steps. Oh, I couldn't even do that. It was, um, and um, I, I, so one of the other sort of the physical side of it, I had, hypersensitivity so from the impact I had hypersensitive taste and smell and hearing um, which some people said oh that must have been really great you know I'm like no the the you're you almost have these filters that are put in place you know so you taste everything and it doesn't always taste nice and the mm -hmm. same with smell I could smell you know if, if clothes had perhaps not been taken off the, the washing line too soon and they were a little bit damp but you couldn't smell that they were damp but it wasn't you know I could smell and it wouldn't be until I'd been wearing them for a bit that other people would go oh yeah you are they does smell a bit musty and that it was like I bought so all those senses were very high heightened and especially with the hearing having incredibly intense headaches um from the impact um which was later discovered after a, a cranial manipulation was actually a structural thing um, that uh, the pressure and the, the, the headaches were, were part of a because my, my skull wasn't was, was off center um, and my, you my, have fact, my octopus the... dropped oh, wow. an inch at the back and my right ear had dropped an inch and I couldn't work out why wow. my sunglasses wouldn't fit wow. <laughs> and you have That's two crazy. little boys at this at this point at that in point your life. yeah so they were You're screaming having these massive headaches and all of this going on yeah 
and sensitive ears to boot. Yeah, well, so I still have, I've been left with hypersensitive hearing. So I, even now I've, I've got hypersensitive hearing. Mm. Um, wow. But um, so we just- And so- Go on, sorry, Cindy. Oh, sorry, Edward. Oh, I was just gonna say, can you tell us how, like what steps did you take to, to move past that? And like, what did it look like moving forward from that? Um, I think the biggest thing, the initial thing was, um, so I, I would also have this fog, what I would describe as a fog descending down and, and um, I'd feel completely detached from everything. So I do recall going to my cousin's wife's funeral during this period. And um, I'd be there in amongst the family. And then it was almost as though I was stood 10 feet back, looking in on the group. It was a really bizarre um, sort of detachment um, in that respect. And it was, also, you know, after a period of going through the neurologist, so I, I wasn't just memory loss, it was the fact that I, I couldn't read, um, I couldn't articulate all the things that I was having. And so how do I move past that? I was reliant on the medical staff, you know, neurologists and the counsellors referred to a counsellor for, um, you know, then for those that perhaps don't understand with when you do have a brain injury or something of nature, the natural thing is you, you, you get a depression, you, you become depressed. So I was clinically depressed as well. And, um, you know, this was a, they measure it and it's, you know, it's, it's like a sine wave, you're up and down. Right. And um, I think the first thing was because of the headaches and everything else, they put me on a low dosage um, antidepressant as well as uh, vertigo tablets. And um, I had every side effect that you could think of on the list. You know, I'd wake up ringing wet, I'd, you know, I was like, so the idea is that, that with the low dosage, sort of these old school antidepressants is that supposedly it would stop the analgesic effect that you had from perhaps taking too many painkillers. Mm -hmm. And um, I was never, I've never been one for taking painkillers or tablets. I've, my mum was into reflexology, so I would always use pressure points for headaches and things. And I think it was about around the time that I was being referred to the neurologist or was just getting the first appointments that I, because of this ear thing, my right ear had dropped, that I went to, a, to a, um, my sister's friend who was a, um, an osteopath and she was, a, you know, just was able to manipulate um, my occiputs of the, the base of the skull, um, which had dropped. Wow. Um, and it was, I can only describe it as evangelical. I was like walking out of the fog into brilliant sunshine after she'd manipulated my skull oh. and vertebrae. So wow. the vertebrae were, were slightly twisted, or, you know, it's just off, off skew from the impact. And that was what was causing all the, the, um, uh, the vertigo, the physical aspects of, of that sickness. And when you feel, feel sick with vertigo, um, but that actually unmasked the, the, I think it's the, the, you know, where, where the brain deals, can only deal with, with so much pain at once. So, you know, once you heal one thing, you become aware of something else. It was only after all those physical aspects, you know, I, I, I haven't got the intense headaches anymore, um, that then the cognitive issues 
of the slurred speech was related because I couldn't think of the right words and um, yeah so I mean so how do I put it the biggest problem I had was actually articulating the problems that I was having because frontal lobe they think right okay that's you know you, you see your executive functioning decision making um, but the hypersensitive hearing didn't factor into that because that part of the brain somewhere else uh, the um, loss of memories and, and things like that so part of the, the the path I guess was I learned to read again so I took the the leaflets that the nurses and the neurology department handed out primarily to loved ones for them to say okay well this is the part of the brain that's been affected and this is how the patient is you know, uh, impacted and I took those and I just spent months re-reading them, learning to read them. I could read them because I could recognize individual words, put them in a sentence, didn't make any sense, didn't make any sense to me. Um, and it would, so just even a, a one side of, of, of paper, one page, would take me several hours to read. And I was just mentally exhausted from the exercise. And over a period of time, I realized I was starting to understand it. I could then articulate, you know, because I, once I can then, I, I was being able to retain it, I could then make sense of it and articulate, okay, well, this is how it's affecting me. And I could use the, the, the words that they would understand back to them, as it were. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess it was about a year, maybe 14 months, um, after the, the initial injury that I was expressing this, this just sheer frustration of knowing, you know, I was running several companies, uh, working at quite high, high level. I was advising, you know, prior to the head injury, I was advising, I'd advise foreign governments. I'd worked for the European Commission, um, big blue chip you know, multinationals, as well as some smaller startups. And there I was unable to do anything wandering from one room to the next. And to, to the point that the first time I opened my laptop and um, it wasn't just the fact that it was asking me for a password and I was going, if you'd have thought about it as being just, oh, I've forgotten the password. It was actually, oh my God, it's asking me for a password. It, you know, it wasn't just that I couldn't remember the password. It was actually that it was a realization that it's asking me for a password. Right. Um, and um, I still haven't, I, I, I've never recalled that password, so I ended up wiping the machine. But um, the biggest problem was I used to, to, and I still do now, I've learned how to, 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 to do it, but um, for every login I had on every system, I would, on every server, I'd have a different unique password that I'd cast to memory and never written down, and they'd be 18 characters complicated, you know, sort of uppercase, lowercase, squiggles and what have you. Um, so that became a real problem when I couldn't remember anything mm -hmm. and that part of it was white. Um, but it was uh, going back to the, the, the moment um, that I was sat explaining how frustrated I was and then being told, look, you know, you're going through this period of bereavement for the loss of you know for the loss of function for the loss of your your capabilities for your memories for 
for everything else. Um, you know, you're not going to be that internet. You're not going to be running an international consultancy practice anymore. Um, and you know, at the time, I'd had to go back to work because I was literally just financially flattened, and I'd taken a, a small project. Uh, sorry, a, a, yeah, a small gig with a small company. Well, relatively small. There are about 10 million turnover, but in terms of the businesses I dealt with, it was quite small. But it was the mindset, very negative, blame culture. And um, I, the only way I could cope going into that environment every day was I would imagine this imaginary force field of positivity and it would become depleted by the end of the day. And that was my only way of, of surviving the day um, in that environment. And I think I was explaining part of that frustration to the neurologist and the, and the, and the counsellor. And then when, you know, to be told and have fed back to me, well, you know, that's it. You've reached a plateau. You're not going to get any better. And it was like a punch in the stomach. But again, some, this is where that intuition came in that something deep inside me said, probably a few swear words, which I won't <laughs> think, but um, I may have even said them out loud. I don't recall, but I, um, I was not happy and I, I, I came away from that thinking no this can't be it this can't be right and I'd been had during that period I'd had people say oh you know had people that have you know had their spinal columns damaged and they've rebuilt them and they've been able to walk again but there wasn't any social reference for me of anyone that had had a brain injury like mine and recovered uh, not fully you know, they might have regained some some use or function and so that really was the was the realization coming away from that meeting and going hang on a minute in the last four months i've learned to read again not if i only learned to read again i can remember the stuff so saying that my memories that you know i'm, I'm creating new memories and i'm able to remember them and i'm able to articulate it i mean one of the biggest things for me was when I first started going back to work, I was going, I'd gone back 20 years doing stuff that was, you know, old hat for me, but I was doing it from, whereas I'd be able to, to, to quote the engineers, okay, you need to do it this way because of X, Y, Z. I couldn't find the X, Y, Z. And I felt, found myself bluffing and I'd have to go away and read, you know, 500 page documents to, to, to try and work out well, you know, this is after the, 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 you know having this realization of having to learn to read again. Um, I, I then started to sort of have to read stuff that I knew instantly um, to try and back up why I was giving directions to these engineers or why that something was done in a certain way. But it was all done on gut instinct because it didn't it's, feel right. Wow! So you you just knew intuitively that you were doing the right thing and and it was stuff that you would have known previous, but you would have known how to explain it and known the why behind it previously. But yeah. now it was just your gut saying, this is the right thing to do, even though I can't explain it. I just know this is yeah. what I need to do. And if you've, if, you've, if you've ever met an engineer or if you've ever had an argument once with one, you'll realize that they love arguments. They love to have a debate about why you should do something <laughs> particular. <laughs> and I couldn't, I just, I felt, that's why I felt almost a fraud at that particular point in time. I felt, um, you know, my, I, I got, got these positions. I got these jobs afterwards 
based upon the me before the pre you know pre brain injury you know i was a go-to person in the industry on on various subjects and and certainly on certain countries markets and everything else and um i felt myself and so that i guess that played heavily on the whole clinical depression thing and that was the other thing i didn't want didn't want there was only a very few people that really knew me well that that knew had had this brain injury and um i didn't want to certainly you know going into that my read going into that negative environment was where it's a blame culture for them to know that i'd had a brain injury and i'd lost memory and everything else for them to then use that i've been in corporate environments enough to know that the games that people play to say no 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 we told you that you've obviously forgotten that's your brain injury you know i just didn't even want to go there um and so how um, did you work, work through that so uh, after realizing coming out of that meeting that hang on this doesn't this doesn't add up you know i've, I've learned to read again up um in the last four months and my i'm creating new memories my only other reference was a long list of things about 10 things that my neurologist had said not to do don't stress myself don't overtax myself don't you know basically be easy on your brain don't don't and i i didn't know i didn't have a any other reference to go from so i just started doing all the things he told me not to do <laughs> so a theme there. do you, you realise it's a pick up there's a little bit of a theme of me doing things I'm not supposed to do or being told there is of. a theme yes <laughs> um, so thank God for that really um, yes truly and I think it was at that point it was because I obviously having to read up on the brain and, and understand it more I um, I now have a natural interest in, in, in trying to understand how the brain works, what we think we know about the brain, because that's the other thing, what we think we know about the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and part of it, so one of the things was the neurologist, neurologist had said, do, are you, do you practice mindfulness? I said, what's mindfulness? He said, well, that's where you sit quietly. And I said, you obviously don't know me very well. You know, prior to the brain injury, I'd have three thought processes all running at the same time. And um, actually, I discovered, well, I didn't discover it, but I, I found for myself a, a technique of getting myself to sleep just by concentrating on my own breathing. And I was, didn't realise it at the time. That's a, a basic form of meditation. Didn't realise it. Um, I just did it intuitively as a way to get to sleep. And, you know, as I said, prior to, to us going live, you know, I'm, um, I'm normally awake. I'm a night out, so I'm normally awake at this hour anyway. Um, and, and even now, I'm, you know, even if I do fall asleep, it's two and three in the morning, I'll wake up anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, where was I going? I was, I was explaining about, oh, rediscovering meditation. Mm -hmm. So probably of all the other things that I could list, and I, um, I wrote them in a book in 2016 as, as my way of helping anyone else that might have had a brain injury. They wanted to, to, to know that there was a, a there was life at the other end of the tunnel. There is a don't believe everything that the, the neurologists say to you. I know, you know, I'll caveat it. There obviously there are brain injuries and there are brain injuries, but my particular brain injury, um, and I've 
helps people with with strokes as well. That you know, I think it's that moment that you're told you're not going to recover. You either believe them. It's like when people are told, you know, I'm sorry, you've got cancer, you've only got six months to live, and they die within days of their of the physician telling them when they get, you know, how long they've got. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very mindful yeah. of um, being careful what you tell yourself mm-hmm. and what you allow others to tell you and feed your brain. And um, but my, you know, the meditation was probably the one of the biggest things looking back that really aided my recovery uh, and it started off really strange because my my brain started I had lots of illnesses after the brain injury which I would now term as because my brain was at disease it wasn't diseased but it was you know it wasn't at ease um, I had a co- I, I, I was passing out with immense pains in my in my abdomen and um, so I would use the, the breathing techniques to um, channel the pain, to, to try and you know, ease the pain. And um, I'd had endoscopy, colonoscopy, and they couldn't find anything. And it was just, so as far as I was concerned, these were manifestations. I had a pneumonia um, after, you know, considering I was a very healthy person before that, um, but because of the brain injury, everything was out of, um, out of out of whack as it were and um, so even now I, I, I don't sit down and, and even at the start of when all this COVID thing happened um, I could feel my bron- bronchial tubes getting heavy and I was like I know I've been there that's done that and I just said right I'm not sitting there in bed and I got up and and I just went out into the sunshine spent as much time as I could and I just mentally told myself that's it um, I'm not doing what whatever's going on here. I'm not, I'm not just not doing. And I recovered within a couple of days. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm a miracle in that respect, but I'm very, very um, conscious of if you have if you couple desire with belief and action, how much you can achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, the brain is an amazing organ, and you just don't know. Uh, there's vast elements of it are untapped um you know who's to say that you know um that other 90 percent of the brain that we don't use is just because we haven't activated it in another frequency absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know the the whole speaking about um beliefs and desires and and being able to do do more and move forward you i'm not sure if we're ready to move on to this but i it kind of links into you becoming the executive producer for the dreamer movie i mean you healed yourself through your beliefs and desires yeah and I know you're, you're helping others along the way. You're helping so many people along the way. And this dreamer movie is one of the ways that you're helping people. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm conscious of time. I don't know how much time we've got left, but the- um, It's okay if we go over- that's Okay, that's fine. fine. Um, so there was a little bit of a backstory to that because I didn't just come and create 
or, or become um, part of the team that created uh, Dreamer. Um, it started with a meditation, believe it or not, uh, back in 2015. And, um, and then that set of, of all in motion, motion I, I ended up co-authoring a book with uh, Brian Tracy. And then off the back of that was asked, uh, they were just making his life story. Would I? They were wanted people that had, that had been involved with him over very over his long span of his career um, to, to to help in making his life story. And I thought, and I turned that. Actually, funny enough, I turned the book down first time. I, I turned it down, um, and then I turned down the movie um, with Brian Tracy down the first time, primarily because. Son number three was due in the August, and the other sons were, you know, two weeks and four weeks early. So my wife said, "You're not." And the most of the filming was was end of July, beginning of August. And um, and ironically, actually, I got the phone call transiting from San Diego through New York that I'm in labour. <laughs> so he was early, um, but I, I made it back in time. But um, but that was the journey that, that started because um, part of my recovery was was identifying who I was um, and realizing that you know I'd been helping all these companies make lots of money and it wasn't incongruent with who I was um, and so Dreamer really is, is just one of those strategies that that I was I, I am using and I've continue to use to try and help people to create a better world so my, my vision that I came up with was to transform three billion lives one mind at a time and my initial thought was how am I going to use all my 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 how can I use my skills and my knowledge to have a bigger impact to create a legacy within the world and initially I thought that was by helping you know crazy innovative ideas um, like creating um, energy from refuse and um, uh, creating zero waste um, processes that would sort of have major impact on whole, whole economies. Um, but I realized as it was my path progressed that in order to do that, we need to create more dreamers um, we need to, to reach out to a much younger generation as well because um, I've, so during this period of, you know I've, um, I've also been acting as a mentor professional mentor to, to a number of graduates undergraduates um, and I discovered that their life expectations and what they want to do they want to have an impact but they're perhaps guided or not guided in the right path right from the start and part of it was thinking well we need to sort of inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs and innovators and world changers much before it, those dreams get squashed out of them so yeah. as kids you, you know i grew up I, I think my first invention was at age five i was going to build a, a, a submarine in the garden and until my mum just sort of very helpfully pointed out that the wood you're using has got little holes in <laughs> and so yeah. sort of, you know unwittingly squashed that 
dream. You might, I might, you know, in the innovate, innovation process, I might have chosen a different material, but at age five, <laughs> I was, that, that was it. I'm not going to have a submarine anymore. Hmm. Um, so the, 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 the concept for Dreamer, at least for my, my getting involved with it, so the, the original concept was um, uh, a guy called Giovanni, who, who um, is the founder of Archangel um, Academy, and Nick Nanton, who I'd worked with previously with um, on um, the making of Brian Tracy's life story. And so when this project came up and he said, look, I know your dream. Um, we want to create a movement. We want to just not create another film. We want to create a movement. We want to share the stories of, you know, six unique stories of, of people that have you know, held up tight to those dreams and actually gone on to, to make a big difference in the world, you know, impacted hundreds of thousands and millions of people and you know some of the, the, the people so you can actually see over my my right shoulder there um this is actually a clip from the the screenshot from the from the film nice um we were filming it at this guy called dean cayman who's a, a billionaire american inventor this was at his estate in in um, manchester new hampshire and um you know He's best known for, 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 for building the Segway or for inventing the Segway, but he's got you know 450 patents were all, all more um, akin to medical um, advancements and things like that. So part of um, you know, you know spent 30 years creating a, a, an organisation called First, which um, teaches you know high school kids to um, they use them using robotics, but they have to create build robots and then they have robot bikes around the world and you know high school to high school um but the whole idea of it is for them to have to collaborate so it's not just them building these robots um the fighting it's actually teaching them different skills different life skills about collaborating with with those that, that so the way that they, they create they you know create this, the, the competitions as it were really inspires and engages the kids um, and so we've got other other people that are in the film. So Lisa Nichols, um, that many I think um, those that may have watched the, the trailer beforehand, Lisa Nichols is there. She was in the, the Secret. Um, in fact, the ironically, the footage we took so much footage that it you know that Nick created another documentary off the cutting room floor for Nick, Lisa Nichols, and that that won an Emmy. Um, in December at the same time that the film uh, got in it and we've got three Emmys for, for Dream which was uh, one for the film, one for the trailer and the editor picked now Nick uh, Ruff actually picked up a, he's an amazing editor considering that we were still filming when Covid came and, and sort of uh, played its part in the world in, in disrupting everything um, he managed to create still, still create you know, an Emmy winning, multiple Emmy winning film out of the footage that we'd already taken. Um, and some of the golden nuggets that, that, that were shared by the various individuals. That's fantastic. Um, Congratulations for, so, for um, those awards. That's amazing. Well, it is amazing. Really down to the team. You know, I, I did my bit, but it's a team effort. Mm -hmm. And it's just, for me, it's just recognition. So the, the awards for me are more about elevating the importance of the film yes to get the message out 
um, some people when they were watching. So we did a, um, a global premiere um, in July, to, to co coincide, believe it or not, with the with the with the moon landing, first moon landing. And people said, "Oh, did you create this film specifically for you know to be released in the middle of the, the pandemic?" And we went, "No, but we brought it forward a few months. It was supposed to be released at the Toronto Film Festival in September, mm -hmm. and um, you know it was just decided that you know." We've almost got to give permission for everyone to dream because I think with so many people during you know um, during 2020 around the world that are we're effectively in you know we're in a state of fear they're in a position where you know they're not able to go out get food they don't know where the next next thing is coming from you're in that survival mode you're not in a creative place excuse me. And so therefore you're not going to, when you're in that survival mindset, you're not creating anything, you're not thinking, you're not dreaming, you're not thinking of what might be able to, you know, all those plans that people had for 2020, you know, 2020 vision or gone. Mm -hmm. you're, you know, uh, your governments are locking you down, you're being restricted, um, you know, especially when it first came out, we just didn't know what kind of, um, you know, uh, world-changing virus this would, would be, you know, right. um, and, and touch I think it's we got off lightly. Um, it could have been, you know, something was contagious, Ebola or something like that would have wiped out millions and millions of people, or it could have right. been some like Spanish flu that would have impacted, you know, uh, impacted hundreds of millions of people. Mm -hmm. um, right. But the point, point was, and the, and the point for this with the film is, um, giving reference to people to say, look, you know, um, give them permission to dream, to think of a dream of a better world, but not just the dream of a better world, but to actually do something about it. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a big thing about stepping up. And if you, this world, I think if anything, 2020 has taught us, you know, with cars not driving around for, for, for a few weeks, you know the pollution the skies were clear wildlife was coming back to places where it was before <laughs> dolphins in what was a very polluted venice um italy you know yeah. um waterways yeah but you know it doesn't take much for nature to recover given a bit of yeah. a chance and, so true um, it's our opportunity to create a better world but it's down to us to do it um the new leaders of the world and that's every single one of us Mm -hmm. um, to create this new world that's better for everybody and the planet and everything else, um, and that's that's why I created. You know, the, the headline for the for the, for the for the podcast was seven dimensions, and that's why I was in the last six months. I've created this model. I wanted to try and model what I've done in business over the last thirty years right. um, from an intuitive perspective to try and articulate my vision of um it doesn't you know having incorporating purpose core values alignment of core values between you know people not just within the workplace but but individuals within your communities that you're serving um not just you know if you're a business or an organization not just the, the people within the work within within your organization um creating better environments for them but you know 
every touch point of humanity. So, you know, your customers, your supply chain, everyone that works within your supply right. chain, right. subcontractors, um, the communities that you serve, um, planet from, a, from an environmental perspective, but in terms of the impact that we have, that relationship that we have. And um, as part of this model I did, I'll, I'll, I won't go into too much detail, but, you know, I'll save that for, for a different time, but um, majority of, so I'm seeing it again in the run-up to 2021, headlines are saying, innovation, we've got to be, as organisations and as countries, we've got to be innovative, we've got to, and that's what's going to save our, you know, that's, going, that's what's going to fuel our economic recovery in 2021. Well, the biggest problem is, and I, from this model, I, it was quite profound when I was going through the process. I could actually identify all the things that, that went wrong right the way back from the first industrial revolution, where, so the other two dimensions are, are innovation and profit. Now profit isn't a bad thing when it's done right, but when you've only got those two dimensions of profit and innovation, they will fuel each other. So if you're only gonna innovate for, for productivity or for generating profit, you can see the impact right. of that right the way back. So, you know, introduction of farm machinery on the land, you know, uh, for productivity so they can harvest and, and um, get more out of the soil. You know, the impact that that had on the people that were working in the farms, well, um, they were able to grow more cotton or, or, or process more wool or whatever. So they created machinery that then worked in the mills so they would create more textiles so the people that, that were unemployed on the land moved to the factories and you know, worked in horrible conditions in factories and, you know with, with health and safety was was not even a word then <laughs> mm -hmm. um, or a series of words that was even considered by business and we can see the impact moving forward and and even now I mean I'm, I'm somebody that, I'm a scientist I'm somebody from from the spent my entire professional career developing and helping companies bring new innovative products and services to market. Mm -hmm. But they're always at the detriment. We don't always see it at the surface level. Mobile phone. Turn out a new version of the mobile phone every few months. Mm -hmm. right. A new app on the app store. For what? Mm -hmm. What you know what what for what benefit? To make mm -hmm. a few dollars? Yeah. Um, I'd rather see someone use that 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 skill that that they have to produce, you know, a, a, a cochlear implant for for a small child that can hear mum speak for the first time, or mm. um, you know, just just for people to actually just stop and say, right, okay, what skills have I got, and how can I how can I create a legacy in my own lifetime to have a have a you know, to, to better the world. And part of the model was actually looking at um, the three-dimensional aspect of the energy that's created from the motion of, of these different dimensions all working. And they're, if they're working independently, then they're not in balance. You know, if we've got just profit and innovation in one aspect, then that's going to have detriment. There's no consideration even for, you know, for, for humanity or... or the planet and, and what was the purpose you'd loosely say are we able to make more money um yeah. which is um a model or, that, that's been taught since the 1970s late 70s and 80s in every business school 
the sole purpose of a business is to make profit. Oh, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. And um, so that's the reason for sort of coming up with this seventh dimension. So you, if you were accounting, you would realize there was only six that I mentioned. So to create maximum impact is when you bring them all together and they form. A, so if you can imagine three, if, you, if you're creative, you might be able to see three spheres, uh, six spheres all coming together. And where they interlock in the middle, you create a seventh dimension. Oh. And that's, main, max, that's when you reach maximum impact. You have not just from a structural perspective, you get in, in, um, the integrity of the of that that sphere of uh, dimensions, mm-hmm. but the integrity that you have from leadership to always do the right thing. So you know, we in the nineties and and two thousands, we've had you know environmental legislation coming into form in, in directing businesses. You know, this is the regulation that you have to follow and everything else. And businesses do it because it's a regulation, not always because it's the right thing to do. Um, and you know, we saw that early on um, with um, messages that were coming out of various administrations, you know, publicly saying that um, to business, and I saw this in the US, um, by the way, um, there were statements from the EPA saying that they, they wouldn't be able to go out and police any uh, any of the compliance to the to the regulations um, because of restrictions on movement of their staff and all the rest of it. Well, I'm sorry, that sort of business has a green light to say, okay, let's go ahead and do whatever we want to. We're going to you know cut yeah. some costs mm-hmm. and you know trying to bring back into to business um, some of that integrity, some of that um, integrity within leadership, but for all levels. Yeah. Um, I love that. So hopefully I've articulated that okay. I'll, I'll, um, I'm still creating the still creating the the, the uh, animated version of this the, the, the different spheres that so people can understand what I'm trying to simplify. Well, I'd love to see that when you've got that completed. That would be fantastic. Yes, absolutely. I've, I've been saying for some time that, that we're entering a new epoch of business. Um, and we've we've seen social enterprise, and we've seen, um, you know, um, different things, different movements to try and create a better world. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of social enterprise, a lot of businesses, like any business, going, you know, when they first start up, they 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 fail. They don't have enough cash. They don't have enough revenue. And you know, profit isn't a um, a bad word, even if you're a non-profit. If you don't make the profit in the first place, or non-profit, all that means is you spend all the profits. Right. So if you don't make profit in the first place, you can't do good um, in, you know, to further the aims of your organization. Right, right, right. Wow, yeah. well, that's, that's amazing. That's, I'm looking forward to seeing when you've got that all put together and, and uh, hearing more about it. You know, we've, you've shared so much information here and it's been fabulous to chat with you today, Edward. Um, can you tell our guests or our, uh, our viewers where they can find you? Oh, um, Ed Fitzgerald UK is probably the... Um, the, the common one so you'll find find me on instagram or twitter or facebook as ed fitzgerald uk 
Um, and um, on LinkedIn, I'm just, just typing my name, Edward Fitzgerald. I'm the only one that's after the URL, IN slash, and then it's just Edward Fitzgerald. And, um, but yeah, but you're, but um, I'm, I'm also joined your, your, um, your squirrel network. So uh, you'll be able to find <laughs> me in there too. That's awesome. That's fantastic. We're glad you're in there. You know, we've, uh, I've, <laughs> We, we touched base not quite a year ago, and uh, I was so happy that you accepted the invite to be on here because I just, I knew you had a lot of information that, that we could really benefit from. And I look forward to hearing, do you have a, a way of tracking how many people you've touched? Because I know your goal is to touch 3 billion people and to support them in some way. Do you have a way to track that? Um, I don't think I will ever will. I did think of how am I going to make this tangible? How am I going to prove that I've touched 3 billion people? Um, part of it, part of my vision was or the realization that I, I'm, I'm not going to do this on my own. And I know that, that, that both of you have probably said or spoken to somebody and just, you know, what was a completely innocuous few kind words that you shared that was nothing to you or you helped somebody made a huge difference to that individual. And I've had it come back in things that I just, I didn't even think about something that I might have shared or helped or, or said to somebody, you know, that wasn't me purposefully going out and finding 3 billion people. And the realization of actually yeah. then coming back and saying, you don't know how much that meant to me at that particular time to, to, to hear those words from you. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but I'm reminded of Helen Keller's story um, mm -hmm. of the woman that helped her overcome her, 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 her disability of, of uh, um, uh, with her schooling in the, in the, in, in, from the outset, and she said that oh, I would never have been able to do it hadn't been for this for this one. And um, Anne Sullivan. Anne Sullivan, yeah. So my her name, yeah. So, um, and so, in that respect, the three billion is kind of come from someone hearing or being inspired by yeah. something that I've done or said or that I've said, or somebody recounting a story from the, from the movie and someone else getting inspired and then going off and taking the, the, the action to, to become. So, you know, it's an aspiration. I, I, I did an interview with uh, Jack Penfield and he said, uh, why only three billion? And I said, well, I, I, I'll take up the challenge of doing more. And so I can change the website easily. Uh, <laughs> but, um, um, the initial in, in, in fact, impact was just to create massive impact. And yes. so a lot of the projects I get involved with, I'm now, rather than settle for small, I'm looking for how best can I spend my time and my resources to have the biggest possible impact yeah. uh, for my time. And, um, and I, hopefully that's a, a philosophy that will stand true and, and will bear fruit and hopefully by 2030, we're all living in a much better 
better world that's greener, cleaner, yes. safer environment, um, and everyone's healthy. Um, that will stand testament. And if I've only played a small part of impacting only a few people to make that happen, then I'll, I'll die a happy man. Yes, awesome. I don't think you need to have numbers because yeah. the ripple effect is going to just be yeah. amazing, the, right? As the, it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, yeah. um, we feel incredibly blessed to be a part of that. That's yes. taking the time so much. to be here with us. We, we are incredibly mm. blessed for that. And we want to thank you so much for joining us here today on TTSN. And with that, um, we're going to sign off from TTSN. Bless you all. Have a great week. And we'll see you here again next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you.